and welcome to another episode of Design Lab. I'm your host, Bon Koo. On today's episode, you are going to learn about how a child psychologist is challenging the paradigm of mental health, redesigning the future of behavioral health facilities, and we're going to talk about why every community needs a gym for building mental health resilience. Today's guest is Dr. Susan Swick, the executive director of Ohana. She is designing and leading the development of a Center for Child and Adolescent Behavior Health at the Community Hospital of Monterey Peninsula in Monterey, California. We talk about the Montage Health Ohana Center that was one of the winners of the AIA 2022 Healthcare Design Award. Dr. Swick is interested in how adversity affects children and families and how well-timed interventions can make a critical difference. Prior to going to California in 2018, Susan served as the Chief of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at Newton Wellesley Hospital in Massachusetts. She was an instructor in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and at Massachusetts General Hospital. She attended medical school at Columbia University and also received a master's in public health there. Some exciting news. We celebrated the 100th episode of the Design Lab podcast. Our producer, Rob Puglisi, was so excited about this. He was pumped. He created a website. You could find the website at designlabpod.com. There you can find a link to our newsletter. And thank you for all our listeners for supporting us for the past two years going to Apple Podcasts, leaving us a review, giving us five stars. If you haven't done so, please do that. Go to Apple Podcasts, give us five stars. That's how you support the show. Now, here's my conversation with Dr. Susan Swick. Dr. Susan Swick, welcome to Design Lab. Oh, it's so great, Dr. Bon Koo. It's wonderful to be here with you. Cool. And can I call you Susan? Is that all right? Mm. Please do. Only my mother calls me Dr. <laughs> Susan Swick. <laughs> Only my kids call me Dr. Koo. But... <laughs> it's good to know they'd be in good company. <laughs> well, I've been looking forward to this conversation because I first heard about you when I read this New York Times article and featured in that article, it's this rendering of a mental health facility in Monterey, California. And it looked stunning. I was floored when mm. I saw this building. It overlooks this valley. There's mm-hmm. swoops and curves to this building that's made out of timber. Mm-hmm. And then I couldn't believe that this was a mental health facility. Right. What is this space? Like, how did it come <laughs> into being? And can you walk us through this? All right. You tell me if it gets boring, but I'll tell you just a tiny bit about the idea for this, this whole center and how the physical space for the center became really central to what Mm -hmm. we wanted to design. So Community Hospital of the Monterey Peninsula is a small 200-bed community hospital here in Monterey, a pretty beloved institution in a fairly physically isolated region, a very beautiful one. I had never been out here. I was born and raised in the East Coast, lived in New York City for a long time, and then in the Boston area for almost 20 years before getting tapped to come out here and help build this about four years ago. And this hospital got a gift from a single donor of over $100 million. Wow. Incredible. This is pretty unusual. 
It's very unusual. It was actually, at the time, it was the largest gift ever given to a healthcare institution by a single donor. Yeah, I know, for this lovely little community hospital. And the donor's name is Bertie Elliott. She's a 50-year resident of the neighborhood. And she happens to be Warren Buffett's sister, but had a long-term relationship with the hospital. One of her husbands was a surgeon, and her third husband, I think, was an oncologist. There was just a long time where she was, and she's been a a supporter and advocate for the hospital for all of her time here. Mm. So she had come to the hospital and said she wanted to leave a legacy gift. And the hospital had made four proposals, one of which, and you work in healthcare, of course, so you know how unusual it is for a hospital to make proposals that maybe aren't capital intensive projects. So rather than it being a new robotic surgery suite or sort of gamma knife center. Usually it's something that has in mind, not only helping patients, but will make the institution money. Yeah. So that ends up being like a surgery center or something like that. Exactly. It's something where that degree, like it's a very capital intensive, money intensive development Mm -hmm. that could make money, but it would take a lot of money to get it set up. And instead, they made three proposals that were had to do with sort of aging gracefully, women's health care, and one of them was youth mental health. Mm. And she and her three daughters all chose the youth mental health program unanimously. Wow. Her only stipulation is that the program be called Ohana, which she lives half the year in Hawaii on the big island. Mm. And Ohana is Hawaiian for family as anyone who watched Lilo and Stitch apparently knows. But it also, it's a broader concept than the English word of family. So the word comes from oha, which describes the taro plant, which is a plant that grows commonly in Hawaii and has a single root and a leafing plant at the center, Mm. and then grows in concentric circles around that central leaf to shoot off many more leafing flowering plants. And it can grow to be enormously big out of this one central root. And the idea of Ohana is that a family is, maybe it starts with a child, and then you have a nuclear family around the child, Mm. and then the extended family, a family of friends, of co-workers, these sort of concentric circles that emanate out from the center. Mm of connection and support. So it's a very Mm. broad idea of family. And she said she really wanted the center to be a place where families and not just the child, the whole family was at the center of care Mm. and where the care they received enhanced their connections to the community. Wow. Rather than isolation, which was such a common experience for families facing a mental illness in their child. Yeah, yeah. So they found me because I don't think there are too many chiefs of child psychiatry at community hospitals anymore. And I was at part of the partner system outside of Boston. I was the chief at Newton Wellesley Hospital, Uh a place that I really loved and had been for almost 10 years. And I came out just to see what they were doing. I actually wasn't looking to move. But when I came out here, I was so I was so impressed to discover both the real shortage of resources. I kind of imagined that California had a sort of similar array of resources as Massachusetts had or New York City had. That's where I had 
kind of grown up professionally and done my training and was working. And I thought there were all the same general problems we had accessing appropriate services or coordinated services. Mm -hmm. But really, there was a even more profound shortage of services out here. That's surprising to me too, because I thought there would be the same amount of service because that, I mean, yeah. California, especially Central and Northern has so much money, it seems like. You always hear about Silicon Valley. and Yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting. The stats from the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry are that Massachusetts is actually number one in terms of the concentration of child. This is just child psychiatrists Uh and the ratio of child psychiatrists to children is the best in the state of Massachusetts. California, as states go, is just in the middle of the pack. We're about 25th for ratios, but the devil's in the details. And actually, it turns out there's really robust ratios in the Bay Area, in L.A. and in San Diego. And outside of those three urban centers, the rest of the state is more like Nebraska and wow. sort of the the bottom tier of access for children. So there's many counties with zero child psychiatrists. This county, Monterey County in California, had a handful of child psychiatrists servicing a total of about 125,000 children in the county. What? <laughs> yep. And zero inpatient beds. And in fact, most counties in the state have zero inpatient psychiatric beds for children. So if uh, if a teenager is going and having an acute mental health crisis and needs yeah. an inpatient treatment, where do they go? They go two hours north or six hours south, which does two things. One, it means that they have a harrowing an expensive ambulance ride. And two, it means their family probably cannot be involved in their treatment unless their family has the means uh, to stay in a hotel for the duration of their stay in a hospital. The family is going to be two to six hours away from where their child is hospitalized. That's such a dislocating experience. Dislocating at a moment of deep need for stabilization. So the need was profound. And I was so impressed, though, with the the curiosity on the part of hospital administrators and the clinical community here to think creatively about how to make the best use of this gift, because a hundred million dollars, it's a lot of money by any standard, any standard. (laughs) (laughs) My kids were like, are we getting a car? And I was like, no, that's not how this works. (laughs) But it's a finite amount of money. And, you know, psychiatric illnesses are probably the most common illnesses of childhood after routine infectious diseases. So children will develop a psychiatric illness at a rate that has climbed in the last decade. It used to be about 20% of kids will experience a psychiatric Mm -hmm. illness by the time they turn 18, by adult, by the time they become adults. Now it's closer to 30%. And that was happening before COVID. COVID accelerated that trend. And just doing some research, that's uh, it's so common that psychiatric illnesses in the children, adolescent population, it's, you said, I think it's twice as common as asthma, right? It's twice as common as asthma. Now it's almost three times. Asthma affects about 11% of children. And psychiatric illnesses are going to affect two to three times that number of kids. And we and think of I, th- I think that's like shocking because I think most of the public don't realize how prevalent it is. Like we think 
so many kids have asthma, but three times as many kids have psychiatric yep. illness. That's right. That's right. Wow. And, you know, my husband's a pediatrician. And even when I'm talking about this with him, he still is like, really, it's that many. And I'm like, come on, you, you're married to me. You should know this by now. <laughs> but I always want to remind or to follow that up by saying, here's the good news, though, because people feel shocked and feel like something's deeply wrong. But I'll say, listen, psychiatric illnesses are not only common in youth, they are illnesses of youth, right? Mm -hmm. Meaning, 50% of all lifetime psychiatric illnesses have presented by the age of 15. And 75% of all lifetime psychiatric illnesses present by the age of 25. And 25 matters because from a brain development perspective, 25 is when children become adults. Like adolescence is puberty to about 24 or 25 from a brain perspective. There's mm. enormous amount of renovation, pruning, and myelination that's happening during adolescence. Mm. And it's complete somewhere in the mid-20s. Mm. It makes sense since there's rapid brain growth and then brain renovation that happens mm. in childhood and adolescence. And that those are the years when problems show themselves, mm. right? Three quarters of lifetime psychiatric illness will have shown itself by that age. And the good news is, psychiatric illnesses are always treatable in, and the illnesses of childhood are usually curable, what? usually curable. 75% uh. of them with the right diagnosis and access prompt timely access to evidence-based yeah. treatment cure. We will put that illness into remission and not need ongoing treatment. It'll be done. So this mismatch of you see a one child psychiatrist for over a hundred thousand kids. It's a is, real problem. It's a grave disservice. Because these are treatable. Yeah. Curable. Conditions. Curable. Yeah. Yep. And here's the last piece of good news. It's like many of the illnesses of youth are preventable. They're preventable. So anxiety disorders are the most common psychiatric illnesses of youth. We know something about risk for anxiety disorders. And we also have, we have robust evidence about how to prevent anxiety disorders and depression in certain at-risk populations from ever emerging. Wow. We know how to teach kids and sometimes how to teach their parents how to teach kids to essentially brush and floss to improve their mental health so that they won't develop the mental health equivalent of a cavity, right? Mm. They won't develop an anxiety disorder or depression. Okay. So you're an expert in your field, <laughs> having, you know, <laughs> taking care of many mm. patients in Massachusetts. Yeah. Then what led you to jump ship and go across the country Oh my God! to Monterey? My mother is still asking me that question. <laughs> so I'm bringing my mother up a lot in this podcast. Clearly, I need to talk about it. Um, you know, as I was saying before, I loved the hospital I was working at. I loved my team. I had built a wonderful, amazing team. I still I care about them so much. They're an exceptional team. I love the work I did. And I really loved New England. I had grown up there. It was a happy place. Our family and friends were all there. But after coming out here to visit, and I really, my initial visit, I was like, I'm not looking for a job. I'm just really curious what they're going to do. How are mm. they going to do this? How are they going to 
take a hundred million dollars and try to actually make a real difference in the community. I came back home and I couldn't stop thinking about it. I Mm. couldn't stop thinking about essentially, I mean, the design challenge, like the challenge. And I was a public health person before I even did my psychiatry training. I got my MPH in med school. And I was thinking, so we have this really prevalent problem that if you get the diagnosis right and you get involved early, and in fact, if you know something about risk, you can educate and empower non-doctoral level clinicians to do prevention work. We might be able to actually improve the mental health of a community, not just build a great psychiatric hospital. And the hospital that had you know, was talking to me about this, was like, we're interested. We're interested in thinking about not just building a bigger clinic or building an inpatient unit, but how do we take this gift and this idea and maybe it's seed money for a bigger project? Mm -hmm. And how do we actually improve the health of the community? And it's, Mm. it's a hospital that's really dedicated to the community's health across different settings. They think that way, you know, with their, it's an older population generally here. Mm. And the hospitals built its own Medicare Advantage plan to Mm. try and help provide coaching and additional support for patients here in improving their quality of life and improving their health and not just, not just be a place where people can come when they're sick and functioning within the Mm. the business model that hospitals usually live and die by. So I couldn't stop thinking about it. Mm. And then my, you know, basically I went through that process that you go through where I was like, well, maybe this is what I'm supposed to be doing. (laughs) And so my husband came out and looked at it with me too. And he said, I don't see how you can say no. I mean, he's like, this is a chance. This is a sort of once in a lifetime chance to try and build a better system, maybe build something that doesn't exist yet. Yeah in youth mental health, where it could be easy to access high quality evaluations and treatment, but where we also could create what would feel to the community like its own center, like a community Mm -hmm. center, where everyone had a sense of ownership and would be comfortable and even excited Mm -hmm. to come and participate in educational programming around building mental health for their children, for themselves as adults. So that's how I sort of stepped into it. And interestingly, when we got out here, which was in the late fall of 2018, Uh literally my first full meeting at the hospital was with the architecture firm. Yeah. I love that how you frame this as a design challenge. And I, in my research, you had put this prompt to them. You said Mm. uh, you wanted a design that would possess some of the wonder of a children's museum or a public Mm -hmm. library Mm. and quote, a place you step in that gives you a sense of soaring possibility. Yeah. I love that. What prompted you to give that design constraint to the architects? Mm. Well, the firm that the hospital had already selected before I came Uh, is MBBJ. It's a firm that designed the Amazon headquarters in Seattle, but they've done a lot of healthcare design. mm -hmm, And I think the big one that had gotten the hospital's attention was Nationwide Children's in Ohio. Mm -hmm. And 
in my experience, mental health spaces were designed where the constraints were the only guiding principles, where they would say, okay, we have to design a space that prevents people from hurting themselves. Mm. And so every single thing about that space was determined by that directive. Mm. But in the end, it came to feel like a fairly grim clinical spaces, austere, antiseptic. Like prisons. Like prisons, like prisons, like places where all agency is obliterated because there's danger, right? And the truth is that childhood, what we want to do in building health is provide buffers around kids Mm. so that they they actually are, we support their curiosity, their willingness to explore the world around them and themselves, Mm. you know, learning about their thoughts and their feelings. And we help them when they fall. We prevent irremediable consequences of falling, right? So it's like, as parents, we think about a kid getting on a bike and you want them to get on the bike. You don't want to have to just force them because that's not going to go well. You want to make it fun, but you also want to put a helmet on them. You don't want them to have a pet injury if they're learning how to ride, but you expect them to scratch their knee. You expect them to fall a few times. Mm. And if we were going to do, there's there's so few times where children in mental health treatment need to be protected from themselves and there's nothing else you're trying to accomplish. Mm. That can happen, but it's rare and it's usually very temporary. Hmm. So thinking about those spaces as being super sub-specialized spaces that you will need to preserve, but the remainder of space where you actually want to engage with families Hmm. and with children should be space that is both reassuring, particularly to parents, and alluring. It should Mm. draw you in with a sense of what's possible, with curiosity, like the best libraries. You know, there's some libraries that can feel static and just like storage boxes. And there's others that feel like you want to explore, like what could be around that corner? What could be up that flight of Mm. stairs? So creating a sense of possibility and curiosity, soaring for me was a word that I came to really naturally because that, you know, for children, there should be moments where the future feels limitless. Mm -hmm. That is just a healthy part of development of earliest childhood. And it's still there in adolescence. Mm -hmm. And we want to hook kids in when we want to hook that part of their natural hunger for things Mm. so that they might feel like this is the place for me. You know, we want kids to actually get to a place where they are figuring out how to be the hero of their story. Mm. And when a child has gotten stuck developmentally because of anxiety or depression or some Mm. other problem, they're often not feeling like the hero of their story. And we could tell them that they're still heroic or they're great and their parents are trying to do that. And that's actually not the way forward. Mm. Like the way forward for them is to rediscover it themselves Yeah, for it to be authentic. So most broadly, that's what I was thinking of. And I was like, we want to make this space safe. It has to be yeah. secure. It has to be reassuring. 
for parents and kids alike. And yet it also has to have parts of it where there's sort of like limitless skies. Mm. There's really some wide open spaces in the sort of metaphorical sense. So it, Ohana is both an inpatient and an outpatient facility right. as inpatient beds. And, and can you speak on some of the design features that accomplish this? Like, for example, there's a, it's centered around a gymnasium and there's a <laughs> outdoor fruit and vegetable garden that's going to be there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the wonderful architects in the group said that the feeling he had after one of our conversations was that he wanted the building to actually feel like an embrace and an embrace of the whole family. And so it contributed to this physical design. Maybe we can post pictures if there's a a link for people. We'll put in the show notes some articles that show the space. So definitely... Because it's so beautiful. Yeah, because you look at it, <laughs> it does not look like a healthcare facility. It does not. I mean, it, it is it is a place where I want to just visit and hang out in. Like, yeah, like a I do too. Museum. And, yeah. <laughs> it's also a really unusual space. Like, you know, the architects came to a essentially a circular design. It's so curvy. I, yeah. It's I was so like, curvy. Yeah. It's like two figure eights sort of laid, you know, across each other. And with the inside is opened up so that it's a series of like four connecting courtyards. And but the outside of the building wraps all around. Mm -hmm. And so at its end, it's a it's an enclosed space with nooks and crannies. And yet it's secure so that kids and actually staff members have lots of options of different parts of the space where they might find what they need yeah at a given moment and yet it still is open connected so there's visual security that you can't sort of run away from the courtyards mm. and and in some ways we're also trying to think a little differently that the building shouldn't be doing all of the work from a security perspective meaning The building creates possibility and that what we put programmatically into the building and staff wise, that we really are thoughtful about how much staff will we have? How will they be trained? That that's really our priority in terms of ensuring the safety of kids and staff, rather than just saying we need tall walls and ligature resistant fixtures and lots of cameras and alarms. Yeah. There'll be some cameras, (laughs) but you know, we want people to drive by the building and feel like I want to go there. I want to go check it out. We're going to have public spaces in the building so that when we have educate, we'll have educational programming. We'll have workshops that are for children of all ages who want to learn about how do you build mental health? How do you, what does mental health mean in the first place? And this normalizes mental health issues of like, that's right. That's right. I've been, I've driven by so many facilities that look Mm. like prisons. They look secure. And you think the message you're sending is like, oh, that's where crazy people go. You know, that is the message. Think of scary movies. They're usually, you know, they use, I know there's some scary movies that have been filmed in old state hospitals, like in Massachusetts. I think one of the state hospitals in Tewksbury Mm. had been used to, to film a horror film. They are effectively frightening places. And they do then, I think, anchor an idea about mental illness that we've been working hard to Mm. dissolve, right? Which is that it is the rare and devastating 
lot of an unlucky few. Mm. And that's just not true. That psychiatric illnesses are common and they are curable. Mm. And the corollary and the piece that I always will talk about is that mental health is not the absence of illness. Mm. It's not the lucky many who have mental health and the unlucky few who have illness, that mental health has to be built. The same as we brush and floss to build dental health. We have to build our mental health. And so the space is almost like a a gym to build your mental health. I love that. I hadn't even thought of that. That's so great. Because I always call it like, yeah, I call it mental fitness. So it is like a gym. But it's a gym for the pediatric population, but it's mm-hmm. also a gym for the community because you're inviting the them in yep. as, as well. And yep. there aren't those spaces no, that there where the community can see is like, here's a place where we could build our resilience. That's right. That's just right. And, you know, childhood and adolescents are where we are naturally building our mental fitness, the same as we build our immune systems primarily during childhood. That's why you get asthma usually as a Mm. child because when you're in preschool and you get all those illnesses all those viruses and a few bacteria you start building up that's how your immune system naturally you know this and but like that's how we expect kids to be sick all the time when they first go to school and we know it's better to get chicken pox when you're four than when you're 40. Mm. we are building our psychological immune system our mental Mm. fitness in childhood, adolescence, and young adulthood. But the truth is, we are always building it. Mm-hmm. It's That's prime time for building it. And I don't remember learning this at medical school, no. this concept of building <laughs> the immune system of our mental health. No, it's not really commonly the way we think about it within psychiatry either. First of all, why would it be any different? We have a biological protoplasm and we get exposed to a stress right? A viral infection. Uh And our immune system learns to recognize it and respond. So in the same way as a six-year-old, when you're kindergarten, you get exposed to a new psychological stress, right? Mm -hmm. Of someone took your toy at school (laughs) and you have to figure out how to manage that conflict, right? Maybe you grab the toy back and someone yells at you and you get in trouble and then you feel ashamed. Mm. And then the teacher says, but that's okay. You, why don't you try to find a way to use your words and not your fist in solving the problem? And that that is actually how we grow. Mm. And it's not that that kid is a bad kid because he took his toy back. That child was trying to figure out how to manage the challenge of two people, you know, Mm. and limited resources. And those are skills that children only build, just like learning to ride a bike by doing it. Mm. And it goes faster and better when you have caring adults in a child's Mm. orbit, especially if they are able to sometimes step back and let kids lean in and learn Mm. themselves and then know when to intervene and offer support. But we don't, we haven't really thought about, I mean, psychiatry has not, since Freud said mental health was like the ability to love and work, we really kind of let it go after that. We were kind of like, yeah, that's a pretty good definition. We haven't thought about, I mean, and medicine generally, I would say, has not prioritized defining health, you know, Mm -hmm. until maybe there have been 
a lot of popular interest in yeah. how to protect, promote, and define health, whether it's around nutrition, exercise, mm-hmm. sleep. And we can say things about cardiac health, you yeah. know, that like, you don't think you have good cardiac health just because you haven't had a heart attack. Yeah. You think you have cardiac health if you know that you can run five miles or that you your ability to do that has gotten better and better. Or mm-hmm. if we're going to test it, we're going to give you a stress test, right? Mm-hmm. And see how your heart performs when you stress it physiologically and how quickly does it recover. Mm-hmm. That's mental health too, right? Mm-hmm. Mental health is your capacity essentially to manage and master adversity. And there's different kinds of adversity. There's internal adversity, there's distress, pain, confusion, uncertainty. There's really mild adversity like boredom and really intense adversity like grief. And there's environmental adversity interpersonally like conflict and other kinds of environmental adversities like broader frustrations or maybe structural racism or trauma or being stuck in traffic. which in some ways is an environmental stressor and an internal stressor, right? Whether or not you can manage to stress. So to the degree, I mean, one of my real goals is to try to offer a simple and digestible framework. This is where I think psychiatry is not done. We could do a better job Mm. where when we try to think about what is mental health, we fall prey to trying to be as thorough and complete as possible. And we've written here, I'll show you this book. We've written books. You're in Philly. So like Marty Seligman's Marty Seligman is a psychologist at Penn. Uh He's incredible. And Uh like the father of positive psychology and of health. Uh But this is like his book on like character strengths and virtues. But it's it's as close as we come to a book on mental health. No one's going to read that. Us, yeah. Right. No one's. And you're showing me a, hu- a huge book that's like probably a thousand pages. Like... Yeah, it's like it looks like a dictionary, yeah. right? It looks like a dictionary. And it is. I mean, to be fair, it's a reference, <laughs> but we need to make it as simple as brushing and flossing. Yeah. We need to make it as simple as saying, here are the three or four building blocks of mental fitness. Mm. And you are creating your own narrative, your own story, your own personal self. But these are the basic building blocks of fitness that are going to help you to fully realize then what is particular about you, you know, exploring interests, building relationships, leaving a trace in a way that you find meaningful. I think it's just fascinating that the Ohana Center is a physical representation of how you are challenging these conventional norms about Mm. mental health, right? I mean, you are challenging the conventional norms of what a mental health facility looks like. Even Like there, I mean, it is extraordinary. There's nothing that I've seen like it. That's why when I saw images of this, I was thinking, what is this? Who is creating this and designing this? And and even the spaces for the the staff, which I love because there's a stat that I read that a third of behavioral health caregivers quit, right? The the high turnover rate. Very high turnover rates. And the architects intentionally design spaces for staff. There's like some like private outdoor patios or something like that. Or and I think that's so important because I look at our emergency department staff, like Mm. we 
don't have spaces where we could decompress. We don't have spaces to take care of our own mental health. And that's common among many units across many hospitals because there's such a pressure that every square footage is Is for clinical care is used to put a patient in in a room. No, that's huge. And we, we thought a lot about that. I mean, I'll start with staff, but you made me think about something with the building too, which was about how people process images so much faster than they Mm -hmm. process words. Mm -hmm. And that we in psychiatry are, we're really word focused. (laughs) We're we're a talking profession. My kids are like, you're the talking doctor. And sometimes, (laughs) sometimes we want you to put your license away, but where there are images that capture some of the things that we're trying to communicate with words, it's so much more potent Mm -hmm. and people have, have a reason to stop. It's critical where part of what we're trying to accomplish, I guess, is a paradigm shift. And prevention only works if people, if there's uptake, right? Brushing and flossing only work if people do them. <laughs> like you can educate people and say, cavities are terrible. And you, these are the only teeth you get after the first set falls out. So you want to keep them because mm. <laughs> false ones are really a pain and they're a little uncomfortable and it's nice to have your own teeth. Mm -hmm. So here's what you have to do. And people might, you know, we, if we know something about behavior, we know that people can actually believe you. They can take in cognitively the Mm -hmm. fact of what you're saying, and it will not change behavior. Mm -hmm. You have to give it a hook. You have to either make the behavior implicitly rewarding. It has to feel good or smell good or Mm -hmm. include time with people you really like, or the payoff has to be immediate part of the payoff has to be immediate. So you're like, well, you brush your teeth and it tastes good or it gives Mm. you good breath and people like talking to you. Mm. So you have to find ways to hook people to the degree that our hook could be the space that we're in is immediately gratifying. It's Mm. implicitly engaging. It's so much easier than telling people what's good for them. Mm. It's potent. It's potent. And for staff, you're, I mean, you're right. I had the rates in behavioral health of burnout and turnover are as high as they are in emergency departments, which yeah. is pretty high. Yeah. Only exacerbated by the pandemic. Oh, oh, well, and I think the pandemic has done two things, right? It's made the demand much higher and our connections to our colleagues more tenuous, mm-hmm. particularly when all of our work for those that started doing all virtual work. Mm -hmm. It worked pretty well in psychiatry compared with emergency medicine, for example, Mm -hmm. and our colleagues in surgical specialties couldn't do anything. But that's meant that it has staying power in behavioral health, but it leaves the clinicians stranded on islands of isolation. Mm -hmm. And we know that the work, even when we're doing it beautifully when we're doing it really well. It includes holding a lot of uncomfortable emotions and a lot of uncertainty Mm. and clinicians of all levels of training, whether they are master's level therapists, doctoral level therapists, Mm. physicians, nurses need an opportunity for both connection to peers, Mm. not just to patients, because that's a different kind of connection. Connections to colleagues and peers and Mm. decompression. There have Mm. to be spaces where you can meaningfully decompress. You mean the bathroom isn't enough? Because that's where I decompress. I mean, that's where (laughs) I used to joke that I was like, this is my office. What are you doing in my office? (laughs) 
So, mm-hmm. and you're right. And look at what the way hospitals used to be built really most decompression happened. I mean, back in the day when people would smoke, people would step yeah. outside and have a cigarette in that smoking zone. Yeah. And that's where decompression happened. We're mm-hmm. a step up from that, but we haven't replaced that with, we know that smoking is dangerous for you. So yeah. people still do it because it's very addictive, but we haven't replaced it with spaces that can promote brief or slightly more substantial decompression. Mm. So when we were designing this building and creating all these spaces for the patients and for families, we thought of the staff a little bit differently. And we decided to create, because we want the experience to be truly family-centered so that Mm. in looking at and walking through the building as a family, We want them to feel that they are seamlessly at the center of this experience with staff circling around them in a way that Mm. they don't have to conduct. They don't have to go find the therapist or the social worker or the nutritionist, you know, or all the different referrals that we offer them, that they're going to get sort of ferried through a system. It's not passive, but it should feel intuitive and natural. It should go, it should feel like an iPhone. You know, we're like, you're engaged, but you don't have to be an engineer to do it. It's intuitive. For the staff, we really tried to think about creating staff spaces that would promote connection, collaboration, and the opportunity for recharging, Mm -hmm. decompression and recharging. And of course, people recharge in different ways. Some Mm -hmm. people need to have fresh air. Some people need exercise. Some people need a quiet break. Some people need the bathroom. (laughs) We have have different options, but we created a few central organizing spaces for the staff that feel like home spaces. Mm -hmm. So we have essentially a, the main staff spaces our living room. And we have a living room in the middle of the clinic. And then there's a smaller one. The building is divided into three levels, the top level where you enter, and it's on a hillside and then overlooks a valley and a mountain range. And so it's a naturally sloping site. You enter on the third floor, but that's the top floor. And that's the level where there's administration, a big public and educational space, and then our clinic. And in the center of the clinical offices is the shared staff space, the living room. Mm. It's a big living room with big windows and very high ceilings. Yeah. And it has space easily for 40 or 50 staff members. Oh, that's a lot of square footage. It's a big living room. That you gave up for. We gave up. That's right. We gave it up. There's a lot that we didn't create space for in our building. We said, this is the nice part of being part of a community hospital so that the our HIT department isn't in the building. Our billing department is not in the building, right? They yeah. still, they exist where they exist at offsite office parks where they want to come to our building to, to hang out. Yeah. Um, and they can if they want to, but they get to hang out in the living room. So the living room has like- I mean, think about how crazy that is that, oh, other people want to go to a mental health facility. They want to hang hang out in our building. And because we have really comfortable, collaborative indoor spaces, we have essentially a living room, a kitchen and a dining room. And then lots of smaller spaces where staff can retreat to have smaller meetings, but where our therapy rooms, treatment rooms, where individual doctors or therapists will be meeting with children or families there's a limited number of them. We only have 16 of them. And Mm -hmm. we expect to be able to service probably 6,000 or more unique patients a year. 
And the way you do that with only 16 individual therapy rooms is clinicians are only in those rooms when they're with a patient. Mm -hmm. It's like being at the ED, right? You don't have an office in like room 12 in the (laughs) ED. That's where patients (laughs) get put. And then the the doctor or the clinician that's going to go work with that patient goes to them. Mm -hmm. It's going to be the same in our clinical offices. Mm. And that when you're done with your three hours of seeing patients that morning, you will go back into a collaborative space, but that also creates the possibility of recharging. Mostly it's about work and we have outdoor spaces. We have a sort of a deck that's next to our dining room um, where staff can sit outside. They can be at a table with others and eating, or they can have a meeting out there or they can sit out by themselves and just be looking out over the mountain range and getting some air and some sunshine. And I want to play devil's advocate here. And some listeners go, well, you had a hundred million dollars to do that. A hundred percent. But you still had to make trade-offs, right? So like, it did not come the decision to take care of the people taking care of the patients came with trade-offs, right? Cause that's exactly right. That square footage could have been used for a clinical space, for example, but you valued the providers and and you knew that space can help decrease turnover and can help the mental health of the people taking care of patients who are having mental health issues. Well, you know, one of the things I say to my team is we're talking about treating symptoms and building fitness, building well-being. We can only take care of others if we also are taking good care of ourselves and one another Mm. of our communities. We have to walk the walk as well as talk the talk. And we totally had to make trade-offs and it was, it was, you know, we have a theory, we have a theory that doing it this way, we're investing a lot of, you know, time, energy, and and money Mm. in training our staff. So there's a shortage of therapists Mm. uh, nationwide and regionally here, there's a shortage and recruiting and hiring people to move to the Monterey Peninsula to be therapists has been challenging because it's expensive here. I mean, it's, Mm. it's California plus it's kind of about the same price point as the Bay area. Wow. So what we are doing is finding those that are already here, who've just finished a master's program in social work or marriage and family therapy. Mm. And we have pivoted to become essentially a training program Mm. to say, if you're interested in working with youth and families and you join us, we're going to give you your supervised clinical hours and we're going to give you training in the evidence-based treatments that we want to be delivering. We're not mm. going to just hope to recruit and hire people that have been trained in those treatments. Yeah. So we protect some of their time for all of that work and really invest in developing our people. Mm. And so it really is important that it feels like a humane place to come to work. Yeah. And not just for the expensive therapist, but for every single person. Yeah. We really we have all staff meetings that include every single member of our team, those answering phones, those ordering supplies, all the way up to the you know medical directors and oh. the other child psychiatrists. We are flat in many ways. We are very collaborative and connected to one another. And that is also sort of a parallel to what will happen in the building. Well, I want to continue this conversation when I visit. I, I would love to visit yeah. the space and I have 
so many more questions, but I want to be sensitive to your time. I, I know you are very busy and <laughs> I- Well, can I, I tell you one more thing? I want to tell you one yeah, more thing. Because uh, yeah. the last thing that you made me think about is that this gift gives us a chance to experiment mm. and maybe learn lessons, hopefully learn lessons that we can share with other communities who don't get a hundred million dollar gift. Yeah. So we want the building to support our experimentation, Mm. to support our ability to learn. But the truth is we also thought about this building so that it could create spaces where when families left, when they graduated from Mm. care, they could find those spaces themselves, whether it is going to the beach as family or making sure they protect time to cook a meal together. Mm. You know, that we, we've created collected eating and food prep spaces for the staff, the patients and for families when they're yeah. in care. You're giving them kind of like mental health exercises that they yeah. can take home. Of course, that we want this to be an extraordinary place, but not the only place where you can feel healthy. We want you to be able to to start building habits and skills that you internalize and you take them back to your home or you take them to school or you take them to work and you disseminate them into your community. Mm. So in that way, it should be a special and unusual place, but a place that in its details feels like many other places where where people could generalize. Mm. And our hope is that if we start to maybe happen upon the parts of this that are really critical, both Mm. for staff well-being and effectiveness, Mm. both in treatment and prevention, we want to share that. You know, we want to be able to say, you don't need a 60,000 square foot circular building to do this work. Come here and learn about it. But maybe making good use of uh, the cool old Victorian house that the hospital, that your hospital bought and figuring out how to turn it into your treatment program space or you know what do you have and how do you create a sense of possibility there so that's our other hope then we will have truly achieved our mission i think is not just improving the health of this community but figuring out how to do it without a hundred million dollars i love that you're open sourcing the design (laughs) principles for mental health that can be shared yeah by by everyone yep no copywriting yeah when when is official (laughs) kickoff so I could plan my visit. Okay. Well, you get to come visit. I'll send it to you. So we're already starting to experiment with our clinical programming, but we're in temporary digs. We're like Uh borrowing a primary, like two uh, pods of a primary care office Uh building. And we can't wait to be in our building Uh because it it feels a little like we're wearing an ill-fitting suit. Because yeah. we put so much time and effort into thinking about our space. You're testing out the software of the program. Mm-hmm. You got it. And they're going to put it. in the new hardware. You right? got it. Yeah. You got it. You got it. So the building is supposed to be finished on May 11th. Wow. Yeah. Then we get to do art. We didn't even get to talk about art, but we really have put a lot of thought into art and into youth art. There's going to be a whole music center because the idea is that helping people to do procedural things that are creative challenging to do well, that you can practice and you practice with others or by yourself. Mm. We're really putting that into the space, but all those installations will start happening and we expect the building to open in July, sometime in July. Amazing. Well, I thought we were just going to talk about the space, but I learned so much about (laughs) mental health and resilience and this is fascinating. Thank you, Susan, so much for your time. What a pleasure to spend time with you, Bon. I can't wait to 
come out and look at your ER and have us imagine how do we bring, you know, our architecture firm has a neuroscientist that works there. And so they have a lot. Yeah. It's so cool. And they had all this about just even about aromatics, about what are the plants that you plant that are the most potent in activating certain parts of your immune system that seem to predict well-being and health. And, you know, it includes rosemary and lavender oh. and all the all the things that just grow wild out here. It's a little it's a little crazy out here. Yeah. Like, that's the part that's unfair. Like, it does smell really good out here. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I forgot to talk for the listening audience and just look at the images of this because it is yeah. one of the largest healthcare buildings to use timber. Yeah. It, it doesn't feel yep. very... Because when you think of hospitals, it's like stainless steel. Yeah, like it doesn't feel like cement and, and yeah, yep, not concrete and cement. There's it's a lot of glass, soft. but it's very soft. All of the walls where there isn't glass, there uh-huh. is wood. And in fact, even on the sort of curving glass walls, there's slats of wood so that we're letting in light without letting in as much direct sunlight. So it doesn't feel like a greenhouse. And it looks inviting from the outside because there's so much timber. And there's a beautiful history on this peninsula of timber frame and and stonework buildings. I'm drooling (laughs) right now. (laughs) But it sits comfortably in this community. There's a lot of timber. And it's a little, you know, we also had to be really careful with the design because we're aware of the risks of wildfires here, yeah, and of course, yeah. of earthquakes. So yeah. in its heart, it is protected. It's protected yeah. against those risks. But it also, it looks so comfortable. It looks really soft, warm, approachable. Mm-hmm. Well, well, thank you, Susan. This was so much fun. Oh, Bon, it was a delight. <laughs> I was so inspired by what Dr. Susan Swick is designing and creating, how she's really challenging the paradigm of mental health. If you want to donate to Dr. Swick's work, there is a link to do that in the podcast show notes. Reach out to me on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U, on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab is produced by Rob Puglisi, editing by Fernando Carrios. The music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.